0: This is the Political Monitor Podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. In today's show, we talk about the third GOP presidential primary debate. We dig into the Concord City elections and I go on a rant about processed meats. So, my name's Clay Wirestone. I'm an editor and writer at The Monitor, and I'm joined today by our political editor, John Van Fleet. Hi, John. Hi, Clay. And one of our reporters, Megan Doyle. Hi, Megan. Hey, Clay. Last night, CNBC broadcast the third. GOP presidential primary debate, and there was kind of no shortage of fireworks there. Um, Kind of the moment that everyone's talking about today is this one. ...by the Sun-Sentinel,
1: because he was the most talented guy in the field.
2: He's a gifted politician. But Marco, when you signed up for this, this was a six-year term, and you should be showing up to work. I mean, literally, the Senate, what is it, like a French work week? You get like three days where you have to show up? You can campaign or just resign and let someone else take the job. There are a lot of people living paycheck to paycheck in Florida as well. They're looking for a senator that will fight for them each and every day. I get to respond, right? 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Well, it's interesting. Over the
1: last few weeks, I've listened to Jeb as you've walked around the country and said that you're modeling your campaign after John McCain, that you're going to launch a furious comeback the way he did, by fighting hard in New Hampshire and places like that, carrying your own bag at the airport. How many votes John McCain missed when he was carrying out that furious comeback that you're now modeling under? He wasn't my... Now, Jeb, I don't remember... Well, let me tell you, I don't remember you ever complaining about John McCain's vote record. The only reason why you're doing it now is because we're running for the same position, and someone has convinced you that attacking me is going to help you.
0: And that was Marco Rubio tearing into Jeb Bush at the the, um, debate last night. That's kind of the moment that everyone's talking about. Kind of a widespread belief, at least being reported today, that... um, Rubio is the one who won the debate. John, I know we were talking a little bit about the before the podcast began began. You're not so convinced of that?
1: Uh not necessarily. I, I think I think Rubio did fine. I think they most of them did fine. A lot of people were talking about John Kasich, that he did really well. You know, from my viewing, Kasich began repeating himself a lot. He, you know, he seemed to come unhinged a little bit. He didn't start by answering the question, you know, and and he took this aggressive tone. I I was saying that I saw three distinct themes in the debate. Uh The first was... Uh, the anti-Hillary statements, you know, that we're the ones who come up with ideas, and it's the Democrats that, that are the ones that all they want to do is grow government, government creates problems and solves problems, so there's the anti-Hillary and Democrat rhetoric. Which
0: you might expect, given that Hillary's kind of consolidated her lead a little bit on the, on the Democratic side of things right mm-hmm. now. Yep. Okay.
1: The other theme was the love thy fellow Republican, thou shalt speak no ill of another Republican candidate. And now, some of them played by that rule. Others didn't. You just pulled the, the Bush clip where he attacked Rubio a little bit, and guess what? Rubio called him on, out on it, and said uh, later, I don't think we played that part of the clip, where he says, I'm I'm not going to bash other people on the stage today. And so the people who took the high road, even a calculated fashion, I think, came out the winner there. And then the last was... The general dump on the CNBC moderators, you know, several of the candidates fired back. Rubio did. But I thought Cruz was most effective when they asked him about uh, being a problem solver president. And he's been somewhat of a troublemaker in Congress. Why would people elect you president? And he's like, really? You know, what what kind of questions are these? And he just he didn't answer the question. Mm-hmm. And then that, the debate really started to run away. And I thought. The and the audience booed several times, like when they were asking follow up questions of of Ben Carson. So, I thought the people who the candidates who were aggressive towards the panel came out winners. So, I, I thought I thought Cruz was most mm-hmm. effective there, and I thought Carson because he really really takes the high road in terms of not speaking ill of other Republicans. He did really well. And to an extent Fiorina did that. And the ones who attacked each other on the stage, and you know, Mike Huckabee also I thought was very effective in that. The ones who attacked each other, they didn't come out the winners.
0: Well, and it's a challenge right now because the the we've talked about it before on the podcast, the, the difference between the kind of the establishment camp, you know, broadly speaking, people like Bush and Rubio and Kasich and And, you know, also you could say there are people who've actually served in elected office versus the non- the outsider camp, um, non-establishment people like Trump and um, Carson and Fiorina. You know, it's getting to be a real crunch time on that kind of division that the establishment candidates have kind of lagged behind the outsiders for most of the last few months. And and I think a lot of them felt like this debate was it was their time. They had to. They had to step it up, either by taking down the outsider candidates, which I think was Kasich's goal, mm-hmm. because Kasich's goal was basically like these people are crazy, mm-hmm. well, well, you know, what, nothing that they say can can work. Which, you know, it you know may or may not be true, but you know, it's it's certainly like a a broadside <laughs> against these guys. Um, or in Bush's case, what was really interesting was he wasn't even training his fire on the outsider candidates. As much. I mean, he's done it before, but I mean, he was actually going towards another establishment candidate because I think a lot of people feel like, you know, the Republican Party tends to go with the establishment candidate candidate. Ultimately, whichever establishment candidate is left standing, you know, has has a good shot to be the nominee. I think he felt like, you know, Rubio is was his biggest threat Uh there. But um, I don't know, Megan, did you what did you have any thoughts uh, after last night?
2: I think it will be interesting to see whether candidates like Carson and Trump and Fiorina, how this affects them. Because the the focus of last night's debate and much of the the reporting after was on the squabbling between those, um, you know, uh, Jeb and Rubio and, and those establishment candidates. And you wonder if the folks that have been attracted to outsiders, people who have no political experience, if they will see that squabbling and... Even for, further drawn to someone like Carly Fiorina, um, mm-hmm. who who didn't have a breakout performance as she did in the last debate, but stayed very on message and um, you know didn't do anything to to hurt her chances, perhaps mm. in comparison to some of the others who who were fighting with each other.
0: Well, and I think it's also tough when you have you know so many candidates on the on the stage. You know when you have something like the Democratic debate where there are you know I, I guess there were. Technically, five candidates on the stage for the Democratic debate, but really there were only, you know, two or three who were speaking at any length. It's it's easy to say, well, this is what kind of the story is. But when you've got, you know, eight, nine, ten, whatever uh, candidates out on stage, as you do in the Republican events, there's really kind of a little story for everyone if they want to see it. Sure. So. Um, and
1: then going into this, everyone
0: was, or a lot of people were suspecting
1: that the person who was going to be bombastic was Trump, yet again, mm-hmm. because he had been attacking Carson leading up to this debate. And so everyone was waiting to see, what's he going to do? How's he going to deal with Carson? And we talked about it last week. It was the first time that Trump didn't come out number one in, in, in a poll, in the mm-hmm. Iowa poll, and Carson came out number one. But he didn't do that right mm-hmm. and so some would say that he lost the debate because he was trump like he didn't take on the other candidates and so you know he he failed to seize the opportunity to to lead to be the front runner again and uh but on the other hand yes, you can
0: you can say You know, I remember when we were talking before the very first of the Republican presidential debates one of the discussions we had was you know What was Donald Trump's approach going to be and a lot of people at the time said, you know His approach should be to lay back and to look presidential and to look like You know a leader rather than just someone who's just firing off all of these one-liners And of course in the first debate he actually was Trump I mean he did just you know throw out all of all of his one-liners and the like, but I I think over the last few weeks and especially the last month, you know, the Trump campaign has really been changing. And there's there's definitely been attempts to professionalize it in some ways, to build kind of build out more of an, a campaign infrastructure in in the early states to actually think of a primary strategy. Mm-hmm. And and I think it might, you know, he still he still I think in general leads in the national polls. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's not a huge lead, but you know, he's he still is the party's front runner in general. So he might just see now, well maybe there is benefit in just laying back, in not in not punching too hard, letting the letting kind of the down the candidates kind of further back in the polls, further down on the ladder, kind of punch it out amongst themselves. And and you know, here I am, statesman like Donald Trump. He did say after, by his own admission,
1: he was attempting to tone it down a little bit um so i also found it interesting that they're they the panel was very judicious in keeping everyone to their time limit right mm-hmm. so then the then the debate's over and everyone there's a, the scrum on stage afterwards right so what do they do they go right to trump and they give him like seven uninterrupted minutes for him to talk about whatever he wants right there was no other candidate that broke into that they this was like trump's and they asked him, who do you think performed well tonight, Mr. Trump? And it's like he's not a pundit. He's the can, he's <laughs> candidate. I, and so I find that just like wild, the fact that everyone gets a measured amount of time during the debate. But then afterwards, because he's Donald Trump, we're gonna give him as much airtime as we possibly can because it's good for ratings.
0: Well, and this is something that I think we, we we did our own reporting on earlier this week, talking uh talking about basically the fact that you know, Trump is the beneficiary of a huge amount of free media. Basically all of his campaigning has been done with free media. I mean, has anyone ever actually seen a Donald Trump ad on TV, heard one on the radio, seen one online? And and I think the answer is no, because I don't think they, they've they really released any. I mean, it's all done in that way, and I, and I think it does raise some fundamental Questions that I think probably journalism professors are going to be de- dealing with kind of years after this election is over About what is the proper role of the press? In in a, in a contest like this when it essentially has the power to make one of the candidates Or or to boost one of the candidates in, in this crazy. I mean in, in a really significant way um, I don't know any other debate thoughts before we before we shift? Well, I did want to go back to the, uh, the picking on
1: Hillary aspect mm-hmm. of the debate. One of those three themes. So, Fiorina uh, kicked it off, I think, when she was saying that it's, it's disingenuous for Hillary Clinton to say, like, she's going to be great for women because she's going to be the first female president. And she cited a statistic that has been checked by Flitifact which is now published online us said 92% of job losses under Obama's first term were jobs held by women
0: mm-hmm. and what's the ruling on that statement? This is a
1: variation of a Mitt Romney claim which was mostly false when Mitt Romney said it and is even less true now so that turns out to be a full false picking up Where Fiorina left off was Ted Cruz, who said that women have lost an average of $733 in median wages under Obama. And that has not been officially ruled on, but it's shaping up to be on the lower end of the spectrum, meaning
0: less true. Less than than
1: half true ish.
0: Right. So, again, a glimpse into the inner workings of the PolitiFact machine, then. Yeah. It's true. Um, uh, but by the time this
1: podcast airs, that fact check should be done, mm-hmm. and you'll have the official ruling. Okay.
0: Um, yeah, well, I think, and, and I actually think there was one moment in the debate where the anti-Hillary and anti-media strands of your that, that you mentioned here came together, when, a, when the panel was accused—well, actually, the media overall was accused of basically being Hillary Clinton's super PAC. Mm-hmm. I think, was it Rubio who said that? Rubio yeah. said that. Yeah, uh, in, in reference to kind of her testimony to the, to the Benghazi uh, committee and the like. Mm-hmm. In a way, I think it, this is—you know, just talking about kind of the anti-media uh, kind of zingers at, at the Republican debate, it, it makes me surprised in a way that it's taken us this long— to get to the attack the media portion of the Republican primary. Because if I recall back in 2012 or, you know, in 2011, when they were, you know, the last time they were going through this, that was a very popular um, strand at, at their debates. And we've had two, and it hasn't really been a factor. But no Listen, words. so when they were doing this, the,
1: the audience was cheering. When, when, when Cruz said, you know, these are some of the worst questions I've ever heard, the, the audience clapped and cheered. And I'm a member of the media, and I almost started clapping and cheering it was It was not the best line of questioning they were they were very pointed and and I know we need to hold candidates accountable. We can't just pitch softball questions to them, but you can't also just say, "Why are you so awful?" and consider that a, ter- a legitimate question
0: well i i mean i i can I can just say I mean as someone that's you know sat on my share of debate panels in the last few years, you know. Debates are a very, they're a thankless job for a journalist, Mm -hmm. basically, because you spend all of these time, all of this time coming up with and researching questions, and then you you ask them, and the the number of times that that question is actually answered by a candidate, you know, is basically nil. Um, You know, at most, they listen for keywords, in the question and then whatever their predetermined responses based on those keywords is what they give. Um, you know, and it's really only, and and then it also makes it unfair because really the only people, all oh, the only candidates who can ever be caught up with a good question are bad candidates. <laughs> or I mean, they're, they're less experienced candidates who, who, you know, haven't been in front of an audience very much or haven't been aggressively questioned. You know, the, the, the more veteran, uh, Candidates, I mean, they get a, a super hard question and they're able to do exactly what someone like, you know, Ted Cruz was able to do or some of these other folks. You know, you, you turn it around, you redirect it, and you, you know, you score points that way. So. Speaking of skilled
1: candidates, Hillary Clinton had a town hall, actually politics and eggs yesterday. Mm-hmm. She did.
2: She did. And In fact, you were there, the, the Megan. Biggest, the biggest politics and eggs. Has ever been according, according to whom? According to the event organizers. Now, what happened? Uh,
1: it's not it's not the Clinton campaign. Truly. I was very interested to see Truly. that.
2: Truly, there were there were about four hundred people there, and they had to hold it in a, a bigger room than they usually do. And and that was the organizers at, at multiple points in the event. So it's, it's biggest crowd they've ever drawn.
0: Wow. And uh, and so what was what was what was the scene like, and what did what did Hillary have to say?
2: Well, um, the her message was very focused on economic policy. She wanted to push um, equal pay. She wanted to push paid family leave. She talked about the Export-Import Bank and, and how she thinks it's a smart move to to reauthorize that. Um, but it was one of the questioners, actually, that, that took her to um, a different topic. Someone asked her her position on the death penalty and and she did, interestingly, divide herself from the other two Democratic candidates by saying that she would not favor abolishing the death penalty, that she sees a need for it in certain egregious cases. Um, and immediately, the the O'Malley camp um, reiterated the, the fact that Maryland abolished its death penalty while he was governor. Uh, Bernie Sanders has come out against the death penalty as well. So that was maybe the only news that was really made at this event but um generally she she stayed on her mm-hmm. her regular talking points on the economy with with that one exception of some Well news. I think that
0: was that was interesting because we also ran a story about that during the Republican debate last night Hillary Clinton also unveiled these four new TV spots all of which were on these topics yes. um you know and, and it was interesting because it's about you know she the, the ads are about four different women, basically, who work kind of middle class style jobs. And, you know, Hillary Clinton does not appear in the ads but narrates them, which I thought was an interesting choice and not something I'd I'd seen before. And but what's interesting was that they were all women. They were narrated by Hillary Clinton, who's also obviously a woman, and yet none of them were exactly on what you would, you know, Traditionally think of as like a, a woman's a woman's issue. Like I mean, there was equal pay, yes, but that was only one of the four. Like the other was like higher pay, and then like college affordability, and and you know what you might expect, you know something about like you know reproductive rights or something like that. That that wasn't dealt with at all. It was exclusively like this kind of economic message, you know, th- through the through the women spotlighted in the ad. So I thought that was a, that was interesting and probably a. You know, probably a smart political move for a, um, a you know, a Republican to, to run during a Republican debate where kind of everything's about, you know, cutting taxes and, you know, not, not a lot about, um you know, certainly not about increasing the minimum wage or something along those lines.
2: So. Yeah, and it it'll it was interesting to see those ads also juxtaposed against someone like Carly Fiorina saying that, you know, Hillary Clinton is a hypocrite and she really wouldn't be um, a A president who would fight for women Um, so it'll be those two candidates I think that their matchup is is an interesting one in that regard
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and Fiorina said last night in your heart of hearts you really want to see me debate Hillary Clinton she challenged people that she may not be appear to be the front-runner but people really want a Fiorina Hillary Clinton debate
2: that's a line that she's repeated pretty frequently on the campaign trail as well. and That usually gets a good response, especially from, um, in, in my experience, especially from female Republicans mm-hmm. who who usually give her some, some good applause to that effect.
1: Hillary's ads, of those ads, so my PolitiFact antenna went up mm-hmm. on, on one of them where the statistic was alarming. I have no real idea if it's true. I, I, I'm not sure. But that's how we often use PolitiFact as our guide. You go out and wonder if that's true. So the, the one, was, one of the women featured was a kindergarten teacher, and, and I believe the statistic was the top 25 hedge fund managers make more money than all the kindergarten teachers in the United States. And I went, really?
2: Combined.
0: Combined, Combined. yes. Right. Well, that is, that is a good one to check. Although although my my experience tends to be and I'm sure this is I mean this has been yours too with with Politifact when a campaign makes a claim like that on such a high profile ad there's usually some sort of sourcing behind it yes now how accurate that sourcing may be right. you know we can if we you can, were
1: behind that ad and you didn't do your research and you just that that thing wound up on air and it wound up to be pants on fire false then uh, you might lose your job you might be making few political ads in the future.
0: <laughs> but, you know, it's also one of those things where actually, the you know, doing a political effect on it would be interesting kind of either way. It's, yes. it's interesting if it's not entirely true, but it's also quite interesting if it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, let's move on uh, here now to um, kind of our last segment today. Um, Megan has been working the Wait, last... Wait, before we move yes. on. Yes. Okay, John. I'm sorry.
1: I, I wanted to bring this up. Okay, but so We were it talking up. about politics and eggs before, right? Yes. Were eggs served? We've done this story before about the origin of politics and eggs, but this was a noontime thing, right? A lot of people think that politics and eggs means that there are eggs involved.
2: There were no eggs served, to my knowledge.
1: But there There, were eggs there. There
2: were wooden eggs, right? So thus, the eggs eggs were not on the menu. The
1: eggs in the politics and eggs are the wooden eggs that are signed by the candidates, and these used to be typically breakfasts where. Eggs were served, but now they can be held virtually any time of the day. I uh, I had someone come up to me today, I'm uh, sorry, yesterday, and say, "So do they serve eggs?" And I was like, "No, they don't serve eggs." And so I just wanted to clarify for our listeners that the <laughs> origin of politics and eggs is the wooden keepsake right. that people get signed by the candidates.
0: I think they should at least try to make an effort to have like hard boiled eggs available to everyone at these at these meals if they're later in the day.
2: But does anybody really want a hard-boiled egg? I love
0: hard-boiled eggs. <laughs> some bacon. I guess better than some, ba- some processed ba- meat. <laughs> some bacon and a, and a hard-boiled egg. It's, it's great. <laughs> so I'm attempting to make this transition a second time now. <laughs> Megan's been working a couple of months on um, covering the upcoming Concord City elections. City Council, Mayor, and School Board. I believe um and so i'm going to hand some of that questioning over now to john so john what do you have to what do you have to ask megan about uh did they serve eggs no i'm (laughs) kidding Uh,
1: so here here you have an election where there are some some challengers some newcomers to city politics and a lot of them are trying to say they're they're stepping forward into this race to shake things up um, who are some of those candidates that you've found that are, that are kind of the outsiders, the political outsiders, the rabble-rousers that are saying Concord's not doing everything that it should, it's you know, not as great a place as, as people say it is, and or it could be better?
2: Well, there are six contested elections in, in this cycle. There's um, two candidates running for mayor. Five candidates running for two at-large seats and then four contested elections at the ward level. And among those candidates, there are several that are running in part on the claim that city government isn't transparent enough. They don't listen to to their constituents enough. And among them are um, Jim Baer at the the at-large level. Um, uh, Mr. Baer is running in hopes of keeping property taxes down, that's sort of his central platform and and says that the the city really needs to start listening to the people who are crunched on on their tax bill. Um, He said that he wouldn't vote for a property tax increase at the city's level of more than 3% in his first year. And for some context, this year's increase was projected to be about 4.2 of the city's portion of the property tax rate. Some of the other candidates that have said um, Government in particular isn't as transparent as it could be, isn't as responsive as it could be. Our mayoral candidate, Paul Brogan, uh, Ward 6 candidate, Tim Willis, and Ward 8 candidate, Dennis Soucy. All of those individuals have said you know, they, they really feel like the, the city council itself needs to do a better job um, interacting with residents of Concord and, and responding to them.
0: And that's that's interesting, too, because I seem to recall a couple of years ago when we had the last round of city elections, there were a lot of people that kind of were energized by the city's decision to buy the Bearcat armored vehicle. So there's kind of a big or essentially a a number of kind of protest candidates. And um, I don't think I don't I don't seem to recall any of them actually winning uh, their, their spots. But it's interesting that, I mean, again, we have this year, it's you know, it's kind of a a protest contingent again, but it's it's not around a particular issue this time. It's more the, the general transparency, you know, concerns.
2: Yeah. I, I would think there are no real single issue candidates in the way there were in the last cycle, but there are that sentiment of, of more transparency in city government is, is present.
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you bring up the bear cat. There was a Uh, standoff in Laconia earlier this week and we were talking about the bear cat in the newsroom and uh, our crime reporter Jeremy Blackman actually called the police department to see if the bear cat was sent to Laconia. And to our knowledge, the bear cat has never been used in an emergency situation. Not that I've been rolling around the city in my bear cat. However, my unscientific eye seems to... Uh, note more Jim Bear signs than pretty much any other candidate. I don't know if that's true, Megan. If if you've taken a look, at the uh, the fin- the campaign finance reports uh, aren't out yet, so we don't really know how much money has been raised and spent thus far. But Jim Bear signs. I I drive over by the uh, exit twelve interchange a lot, and there's signs all around there. I I frequently runlit school area, so there's lots of signs around there. Um, it's more than any other candidate. I don't know if that's true, if you've seen a lot of Jim bear signs more than any others.
2: I haven't done count of the signs uh-huh. and you are right, the finance reports haven't come out yet. Generally, the candidates don't raise a lot of money and, and will spend several hundred dollars of their own money to mount their campaign. Um, it's not a, surprisingly, not a big spender type of election. But I have seen a number of Jim Bear signs. I have seen a number of Jim Boulay signs. I think he's the only candidate with with a, as many signs out there as as um, Jim Bear. Um, I've seen a number of Sean Riley signs as well, who is uh, a challenger for one of the at-large seats, not an incumbent. Um, uh, he uh, is a, a pretty unique candidate, um, the Laconia deputy fire chief running here in Concord. So. It'll be interesting to see when those campaign reports come out. Who has spent any money to campaign, and and who's just quietly maybe knocking on doors or or chatting with their neighbors.
0: Well, I think the contrast here is remarkable, right? I mean, we have this presidential primary election going on that's at you know it's it's a super high volume all the time, you know, twenty four seven, and the candidates are around, and and yet you know if you want to talk about an election that actually probably has some of the most Effect on people's lives day to day. I mean, because it's the pocketbook, right? It's it's property taxes, it's these city elections, and yet, you know, I I have to assume that you know one of the perennial issues with the city election is getting people particularly interested.
2: That's definitely true. There's I mean, voters, usually, not necessarily yeah. the candidates. I'm sure the candidates
0: yeah. are very interested, but well, some of them. <laughs>
2: Um, Megan,
1: you told me the expected turnout would be roughly between twelve and twenty percent for a city election. It's
2: been as low as ten in the last four or five cycles, um, and the high point was twenty percent.
1: But you know, at at the high watermark for a off-cycle city election, you're talking one out of five voters. That's, right. That's not so hot.
0: Right. And you know, and it, it's it's interesting because when you when you have that small of a number of voters coming out. It also does pose certain risks in the sense that if you ever get people sufficiently outraged about something, it doesn't take much to, you know, clean house. And of course, that hasn't actually happened in, in Concord yet. But, you know, if you assume that, you know, some sort, of, some sort of crazy situation would happen and there were widespread calls for change, you know, you only get, you know, essentially one more person out of those five to show up and you can you can change the the entire course of the city
2: Hypothetically that is true, especially in such a low turnout election But it is very rare for an incumbent to lose and Concord.
0: right? Well, and it's it's a very I mean, it's a it's basically a city government that at least in my experience just you know Watching our reporting on it for the past many years is a city government that in many ways prizes prizes its stability you know, and kind of takes pride too, and it's you know it's like there's not a lot of crazy change. You know anything that happens in the city is talked about and then talked about again and then talked about some more and then put off a year and then talked to, to, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then talked about again. Um,
2: yeah, and you'll hear that in the the rhetoric that's coming from incumbents like uh, Mayor Jim Belay or at large councilors Steve Shortlef and Mark Cohen. They'll in their pitch to voters or, you know, when they came here to the moderatorial board, much of their pitch was about the the accomplishments they've had, the stability they've, they've brought to the city council, and, um, and, you know, the fact that they want to keep that moving forward.
1: Mm-hmm. Megan, you had an interesting story earlier this week about the criminal records of several of the candidates.
2: I did. Um, three of the candidates in contested elections have um, criminal vac- criminal records. Um, should preface that by saying that having a criminal record doesn't bar you from um, running or holding city office. Mm-hmm. There are candidates in the past that have both run and held city council seats that have had um, criminal records. Um, only one candidate, mayoral candidate Paul Brogan, has a felony record and two others At-large counselor, um, incumbent Mark Cohen, who's running for re-election, has a um, DWI on his record from 2003. That's a misdemeanor. And um, Timothy Willis, who's running in Ward 6, was convicted of um, unlawful sexual conduct um, in Maine in 2003. He was required to register as a sex offender for 10 years and is no longer required to do so. He's fulfilled his obligation Um, He was also found guilty of uh, misdemeanor reckless conduct in 2014.
1: Also on your desk, uh, you have a copy of Paul Brogan's book. I believe the title is, Did I Just Drop a Name? Was that That a a name name I I dropped? dropped. Thank you for the correction. You guys are both way ahead of me on that (laughs) one. And uh, I was thumbing through it. I I found it interesting that on the back cover, there are some glowing quotes uh, about him from Doris Day. Um,
0: Catherine Hepburn, yeah, Catherine Hepburn, Elizabeth and, and Taylor Elizabeth well. Taylor. Yeah, that, that was that was interesting. Well, it is, it is, uh, it's just interesting to me. I've not actually dug into the book much myself, but it is a more than 500 page autobiography. And
2: he does also detail some of his um criminal history in that book as well. his Criminal history is all from the 1980s and 90s, um, and generally financial crimes, um, credit card fraud, forgery, um, and um, and another fraud case. So those those are detailed at great length in his book as well, um, as in my story.
1: And to be fair to him, to Paul Brogan, uh, during our edit board, he was very uh, forthcoming about these mm-hmm. convictions. He uh, he addressed them as a time in his life where he was admittedly making bad choices. He has learned and grown. Uh, he said it was mental illness, a lo- just a pattern of of things. Since then he has sought treatment and um, you know was very open and candid about them when announcing and, and talking about his candidacy candidacy for mayor.
2: Yeah, I found that all three candidates that have criminal records, um, in, in their contested races have been very forthcoming and, and all of them to their credit have said that they don't think that their histories would um, impede them from serving on the city council, though, I guess that's something for voters to decide.
1: And you and I, Megan, had talked about another story that would possibly be of great reader interest before the election, but I'm not sure we're going to get it done this time around which was the unpaid parking fines of the candidates. One of my favorite all-time stories because I think that is the level of information that people want to have when they go to the ballot box because it's interesting if someone says, I think the parking fund should uh, have more money and I think we should get tough on the delinquent parkers or I think we should have free parking downtown. Whatever they may say, juxtaposed with how much money they owe the city in unpaid fees and fines so perhaps next time or maybe an after election special
2: there you go
0: speaking as someone who had some unpaid parking tickets for a somewhat lengthy amount of time i i can sympathize personally (laughs) with this Although I, be- I might have
2: to disclose how many parking tickets I've gotten in the city of Concord. Although I, I- will
0: I will say that I do believe at this point I am all paid up
2: right? and
0: in good graces with the city of Concord's parking. Well, market.
2: that is a public record so I can find out.
0: I'm sure and I guess feel free to do so. But um otherwise I guess uh, voting day is Tuesday?
2: Voting day is Tuesday and the Concord Monitor has a, a page on its website with all different kinds of information about the candidates. Um, go to the homepage and click on the Concord Election 2015 box.
0: Okay. You fat. can also
2: find your polling place there. Speaking of v- voter turnout,
0: very helpful too. So, well, that's great. So, you know, thanks so much, guys, for coming in. Thank you, Megan.
2: I'm so glad to be here.
0: I was. We are glad to have you. And thank you, John. Thank you, Clay. Always a yeah. pleasure. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can listen to past episodes of this podcast series or have new ones delivered straight to you by subscribing through iTunes or Stitcher. And for all of the latest political news, go to politics.concordmonitor.com. Take care, and we'll see you next week. So today, before we actually talk about anything politically based on the podcast. I want to talk about the World Health Organization's report issued earlier this week about the possible cancer risks of processed meat. Okay? So, just bear with me for a second. This was widely misreported as as somehow saying that eating, you know, a sausage or eating some salami or bacon would would be as bad for you as smoking or, you know, going into your basement and breathing asbestos. And that is, is not actually what the report said. It did establish that there was some causal link between eating processed meat and having an, and a, an increased risk for colorectal cancers. However, the risks involved are tiny. So basically, everybody has like a 4.5% lifetime risk of getting some sort of colorectal cancer. If you eat a hot dog a day, that increases your risk by 18%, or your lifetime risk becomes 5.3%. It's, it's just negligible. Compared to something like smoking, where most people's lifetime risk is maybe 1.3%, and if you're a smoker, it goes up to like, your lifetime risk is like 17.2%. That's like an over 1,000% increase in, in risk if you're, if you're a smoker. A lot of it just has to do with how we per- perceive risk, which has been a long-term interest of mine in, in writing and reporting on health, which I've done some. Uh, outside of the monitor, is just that, you know, people don't have a good idea of what risk means and what, like, an 18% risk increase means. It's like if you just have a 1% risk of something, saying that, oh, my God, your risk doubled, well, it means you have a 2% risk. You know, it's not not very great overall. So, anyway, that's how we're starting today. What a relief. (laughs) I'm just saying if people want bacon, you can have some bacon. It's fine. Maybe you shouldn't have bacon, you know, for all of your meals every day with extra hot dogs. But, you know, now and then, here and there. I believe Hardee's
1: has a (laughs) burger with hot dog and bacon on it.
0: You know, and it's it's the lack of Hardee's, uh, you know, in the New Hampshire area that really, you know, brings a tear to my eye now and then. They're also known as Carl Juniors, though. That's well, what I think all... it's the same thing. Yeah, and, and it... I
1: believe it's the All American Burger is what that's called. I see.
0: So,
2: but that... maybe what you've learned is that we're better off without. Well, or
0: perhaps just half of, an... <laughs> of an all... moderation in all things, um, including the World what...
1: Health Organization call that burger uh, carcinogen on a bun?
0: Yeah, possibly. Um, so, but so actually getting to the meat of today's podcast.